I found out in the shed. Let's dust it off and see what it sounds like. I don't know what kind of rooster thinks it's a good idea to start crowing at four in the morning, because that ain't the damn morning in any place at any time of year. I don't care. Apparently, it, it was even roostering and crowing earlier. But nevertheless, it's a frosty, sunny morning in P.L. Washington. That's more than two letters, and it's off most maps. But uh, once upon a time, man, P.L. was a, some sort of crazy boom town. But this morning, it's just a frosty town of 600-some-odd people, a pan of bacon, a pan of hash browns, some biscuits going, and a hemp head playing with a knife. Oh, man. What you cooking, Ed? Well, we're making some little fried potatoes here. This is a pretty well Kentucky Southern style breakfast with crunchy bottom biscuits, bacon, scrambled eggs, and fried taters. Oh, good times, good times. Man, you know, you're getting almost all your food from right uh, within, like well within 100 miles of here, eh? We try for this 100 mile diet, and just about everything that we eat in the house, I guess, other than citrus and bananas and things of that nature come within a real local vicinity we have the local kielbasi local kielbasi we have some good butcher shops and uh, some local dairies where we can still get unhomogenized milk and things of that nature so yeah we try and live pretty much off the grid food wise rutabagas parsnips and turnips all in one dish last night as well as uh as well as grass-fed beef and uh, and 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 all in a in a in a pie shell, man. That was unbelievable. That was unbelievable. So uh, you know now, uh, what's this town? What's this town got? Six hundred some odd people. Yeah, between six and seven hundred fluctuates a little bit. School, there's about three hundred kids in the school. But we pull in from a larger radius. It's a unified school district, so there's kids from twenty mile radius coming in to go to school here. The about town's town's what a hundred and hundred and some odd year old. Yeah, just incorporated in 1906 and just celebrated our 100th anniversary last year, last 4th of July. And the first settlers that came into this area was around the 1870s to 1880s. Generally, they were German immigrants, most of them. Started little farms. And then there was so much timber and so much logging in the area that they put railroad through. Of course, they had to, had to have mills to provide the railroad ties, so that's what pretty much got them started. And, and uh, this is timber country. This is tree-growing country. That's what we do. Yeah. And then we cut them down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been around on all these back logging roads, man. It looks like there's roads that go out to the coast, down to Oregon, where you don't even have to see a highway. But you're likely to end up on the riding the grill of some Peterbilt if you're not careful, eh? Pretty much, yeah. We can drive from right here. We're about 40 air miles from the mouth of the Columbia, and we can do all that off-road with logging systems. Warehouser pretty much used to, and still does, control most of the headwaters of the Upper Chehalis River, which is actually the second largest drainage in the state of Washington. And uh, But Warehouser controls, I don't know, out of their 13 million acres, this is a chunk of it right here, probably, I don't know, it must be close to a million acres right here in this one tree farm. Now, around here, there used to be a lot of other little... Uh, somewhere between timber camps and towns, you know, like Wallville. Didn't your gramps live up in Wallville? Yeah, in, in the early 20s, my grandfather worked in a sawmill at a place called Wallville, which is just five miles from here. But Is there anything there now? Foundation, oh. yeah, and that's about it. Uh, there used to be as many as 500 people that lived there and worked in the mills. Even had a Japanese community at the time of Japanese immigrants that did the hard labor. And uh, also... 
um, in a 50-mile stretch from I-5 to the coast along this 50 miles of highway, at one time they claimed there was 49 sawmills in 50 miles. So there was lots of sawmills here on the tracks. And your uh, your Gramps, was he working up there in the hills on the incline and such? No, he worked in the mill generally. He was a, uh -huh. a millman and he worked in the Wallville mills, worked in the Doty mills. And then later when the war started, he, I think, got a job distributing oil or something around the area, fuel oil. Uh -huh. yeah. And how about you? When did you sign on with the, uh, in the logging industry? <laughs> 18 years old. Yeah. The day I turned 18. Uh, you put on a pair of cork shoes and you go string the silver strands through the evergreens. <laughs> That's uh, setting chokers. And you did that up in Alaska as well? No, 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 no. I only set chokers just for a little while until you get your feet on the ground and understand that there's better jobs in the industry other than running around <laughs> and running up and down down the hills like a trained ape. So uh, I got into timber assessments, timber evaluations, log scaling, inventory controls, that type of thing. And I did that for, oh, almost 20-some years uh, here in Washington, Oregon, Alaska, even did some work in Canada. Now going on here with your own little homestead, you've got some, uh, you've got some chickens out back to go with your <laughs> roosters. Are you feeding them hemp seed? Feeding them hemp seed. And uh, we're upping the omega-3 fatty acid content of our eggs. Instead of being unhealthy cholesterol-building eggs, we have cholesterol-busting eggs, supposedly. <laughs> So uh, when you're up working in the hills, is that when you evaluating fiber? Is that what sort of motivated you to start looking for alternative sources of fiber and fuel? No. It was my relationship with smoking a lot of dope mm -hmm. that I realized that uh, this thing they called marijuana also had many other uses other than making me feel good. And uh, one of them was we could provide all of our paper needs. We didn't need to tear down the old growth forest just to provide our shit paper or writing utensil needs or billing information or whatnot that we could do this with uh, with an annually grown crop keep our farmers working and uh, leave the leave the timber for more valuable things like nice impressive furnishings and mm -hmm. building our homes with and some of these things but uh, just to tear down an old growth forest to convert it to shit paper didn't make any sense to me and when I started logging up here in 1964, there was still a sizable amount of this was old growth forest. Big old growth, Douglas fir, red cedar, and uh, Sitka spruce. And we killed it. <laughs> we killed it and sent it to the pulp mills, a lot of it. And it just didn't make any sense. Prior to the time that I started logging in that country, I was hunting and fishing up there. And after about 20 years of complete clear-cut devastation, the river was screwed up. We lost all of our fish. The highs and lows in the, in the river volumes were undoubtedly directly related to removing of the watershed. And now, 30 to 40 years later, after it's starting to green up again, we can see the results. The river's cleaning up quicker. We don't have the highs and lows anymore. Things are getting back into balance, but this is with 30-year-old timber rather than with four to 500-year-old timber that was there before. So it's definitely not as pristine, but they're working at it. 
forced by the ecologists and forced by law, the timber companies have started to comply as best they can. But it's a, it's a destructive industry. Right, yesterday when we cruised up those old logging roads and uh, to get the view of the St. Helens and Adams and Rainier on a blue sky, uh, dreamlike, surreal landscape, um, we were driving through this patchwork of mangy dog, clear cut and old second, you know, second, third, fourth growth or whatever, and seeing the, these uh, these lines and these patches are cut to kind of north, south, east, west perimeters rather than contour cutting really seems to to be a policy that prom really promotes that uh, that destroying of the watershed because there's not proper drainage and it goes in there and damages the streams and it's a mess and when they go back and throw in a few uh, dug stands of dug furs to sort of compensate for that it's uh, it's a mess when you get a big storm like we have this winter well we have a now instead of having a multi cultural forest or a multi-diverse forest in the old growth state we now have pretty much a monoculture forest we have warehousers hybrid dug fir and predominantly that's it and warehouser even had a practice in the past well i shouldn't single out warehouser they all did where they would uh, actually defoliate use agent orange pretty much effects only thereof anyway that wouldn't affect the conifer trees but it would totally kill all the visiduous forest mm -hmm. and this allowed their super tree to have a healthier start S but it, we wound up with this multicultural forest and i'm sure we've lost some species of animal and and rodent that that will not co-inhabit in just this mono species forest i'm sure it's done some harm oh yeah yesterday seeing just the the wreckage of all of all that and seeing just the one kind of trees and underneath the undergrowth it wasn't lush mossy stuff it was just grayish dead stumps and snags um, and nothing else can really really survive because nothing else can get a foothold but when you have a big storm like recent like recently where those dug firs are so tall with the shallow root balls and they come up so easy you can take a whole stand down in a heartbeat yeah, yeah we have we did lose quite a bit and uh, I haven't been up in the high country since we've had these most recent storms to see exactly how much damage is done but anytime when they open an area up and clear cut one piece and then leave a stand next to it that really exposes it to the elements to where the, the next time there's a windstorm in it just takes down that whole front of trees and it's pretty obvious pretty evident just driving around and looking locally biscuits are going into the oven that was some excellent multitasking, by the way. <laughs> cast iron pan, handmade biscuits, and a cast iron pan full of hot grease. I'm grabbing coffee and a hood over here. At times like this, this is best to pause for a tasty dinner.
that bacon sizzling. She's down bacon sizzling. Oh, tasty. So, Ed, we just set up a new blog, and you sent off a letter to uh, Willie Nelson, kind of an open letter to kind of initiate a conversation with him about his uh, ethanol projects or something. What was up with that? Biodiesel project Willie's mm -hmm. into now down in Texas. He's got a few outlets and, and started a uh, refinery, actually, down there called Bio Willie Fuels. And they're blending 20% biodiesel with, uh, with regular diesel fuel. And actually, they're selling it for a cheaper price than the diesel is on the market down there now. And being supplied, this refinery is being supplied by local farmers growing grains and getting the oils for this. Uh, what I was trying to convince Willie in this letter is to maybe back off on his pursuing the seed oil conversion to energy that it is really not cost effective. And if he really wants to get into this in a big way, to go into the cellulistic conversion, that this is what's gonna energize this whole alternative energy field is when, instead of just taking the seed oil and converting it into an energy product, that you take the cellulose structure of the plant and convert cellulose to liquid energy. And it's feasible, it's done, they, they do it. They're doing it on a small scale now, they just need, just need to build it up, ramp it up. Well, hell, they convert it into some sort of joint rolling substrate. I, I don't want to call it a rolling paper because it's not a paper. It's a rolling non-paper. Cellulose. And, and prior to all of We Can Do It Better with Chemistry, DuPont, they did have cellophane papers. Cellophane was the plastic wrap of the time. So we know how to do this. It's just revising old technologies and putting new spins and new technologies to it. What encouraging signs have you seen in the... Uh, in the world of hemp, if any, over the last 10 years since we've been working on these projects together? This is really on the QT. But, <laughs> <laughs> but go, go on. <laughs> but probably some of the most encouraging things I've seen is legislation being enacted to stop the filling of landfills, to stop the production of non-compostable materials. And the first one that I can think of comes to mind is the carpet industry. Mm. to quit using all these nylon-based and synthetic-based materials for our carpeting because once, once they, you tear them out, you'll have it in a landfill forever. It's forever. just never degrade. Yeah, and even when you put them in the office, they off-gas and they're nasty. Exactly. There's environmental concerns just with the in-house air that you have to breathe yeah. and the fumes coming off of these. But uh, this might really give a chance to revitalize the fiber end of the industrial hemp industry. It looks like the seed oils and the seed products are taking care of themselves. The food industry is starting to grab a hold of this and understanding the nu nutritional values and embracing it. Uh, the price points are still too high. The more production we get is a plus. Canada has doubled their production this year, primarily for the seed industry. So we've got things going our way. Called a peace revolution. Yeah, I'm grabbing let's copies, take okay. back America. There's a war and we're in it, but I know we can win it, so let's take back America. Let's take back America. It's a dream, so believe it. Now get ready to receive it. Now let's take back America. When the war is over and we've won it, let's remember how we done it so we don't have to do it again. 
so we don't have to do it again. There's a peaceful solution called a peace revolution. Now let's take back America. There's a war and we're in it, but I know we can win it. Now let's take back America. Now let's take back America. There was a peace resolution and a peaceful revolution and the peaceful solution saved America and the peaceful solution saved America but this is the message that I wanted to get to Willie is to really research to have his people research and look more into the cellulistic conversion and to see what role he can play at least getting the message out concerning this mm -hmm. the process that where instead of taking 10 acres to make us X amount of energy, we can do the same in five acres. And that's what it really boils down to, is to be able to maximize the efficiency of the agricultural end of this, because all the naysayers are saying, well, it takes so much energy to grow this. Well, it does, if you're gonna spread it out over a thousand acres and trying to harvest a seed to make an oil out of it and then convert. But when the technology exists to take plant matter, take the cellulose structure of plant matter, and convert that to energy. I'm gonna use a comparison. If you can harvest 20 tons of corn in a field with 30% cellulose content, or you can harvest 20 tons of hemp in the same field with a 60% cellulose content, and cellulose is the key factor of determining the volume of end finished product biofuels you're gonna get out of it, which would you grow? Ding, 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 I'll choose hemp. <laughs> although, although popcorn's tasty, I'll keep the corn for the popcorn. <laughs> exactly. It all has its place, but corn is not the best possible use of the agricultural land to produce energy. It is just not. And in our northern tier climate states, Wisconsin, Minnesota, these, this is traditionally where large amounts of fiber have been grown. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the more sunlight you have on this very photosynthetic sensitive crop, the, the more fiber you're going to be able to grow, the more cellulose you can grow in the northern climates with more daylight and hours. You're growing taller plants for fiber. The taller yes. the fiber, the finer the thread. Exactly. If you do want to have a spin-off uh, fiber industry from this, uh, textiles industry from this, this the n farther north you can grow the plant and still maintain an adequate volume per acre is where you're going to get your prime textile fibers mm -hmm. is in from the north climate. We've, I even have talks ongoing with farmers in Alaska that will try this as soon as the government allows. And what's the secret of uh, is just finding the right strain to grow up in a climate like that, eh? Well, yeah, and it's not even that difficult. I mean, if we study history at all, we'll find out that the Russians have historically been the, the leading producers of, of hemp, and all you have to do is look at a map and see where Russia lies and there's ruderalis there's ruderal, <laughs> ruderalis strains, yeah. there's ruderalis strains that in fact we developed some high-tech strains while I was living in Alaska this wasn't for fiber content but we were able to develop strains that we could plant a seed the end of May and harvest what we were using it for the end of August we had a like a three and a half month cycle on this stuff so it gets you got 24 hours of daylight things happen fast <laughs> The photosynthetic process, photosynthesis mm -hmm. goes crazy.
Well, let's get some of them high omega-3 enriched eggs going here. Mmm, tasty. The well-fed chickens. I just gotta knock some of this chicken shit off of them, and other than that, they're good to go. That's just extra vitamins, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's all healthy, I guess. Mmm, now that's some dank stash. Well, you're making them uh, eggs up all scrambled style. Uh-huh. Cooking a little butter. Oh, this is going to be tasty. So, uh, so hemp ed. Yeah. You know, when you, uh, when you got a, a notion and you, you bought a big van and painted Hemp Express on the, on the side and went around activating and, and uh, swinging, swinging the products and the activism around to the people, what, uh, you got any ideas of what, uh, maybe something a little less intense that folks can do? Well, you know, I wish somebody would take off with a venture like that again. Uh, I would choose a different style of van than I did 12 years <laughs> Big ago. Big panel van. It's a little, <laughs> it's a bit of a grind in the wind, eh? Oh, a Q van would be great. But this thing was a P-series van that you should use to deliver newspapers around the community with. And uh, I'm taking it on the freeways, you know, over Mountain and Dale. But, uh, yeah, I, probably a museum, some way to finance the darn thing is a problem, though, unless there's enough of us around that can... Uh, that can uh, help finance somebody going around and educating. The HIA for years has been, uh, has had a, oh, a kind of cardboard display that they'll send out to anybody that requests it if they're giving presentations concerning yep. the 50 to 100,000 different uses for the plant. So we just need more education. I did notice on, uh, was it Today Show, ABC Today last week, they had a uh, big demonstration put on by the ABC food editor on the importance of the hemp foods and and said that it was the up-and-coming thing. He gave he really revved it up. He did a good job. Some of his facts weren't quite on. I can't recall any instances right now, but I remember a couple of times kind of crimacing on some of the statements he'd made that weren't quite factual, but... Oh, well, roll with it. As long as he's saying hemp, the rest can be... Blah, 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 <laughs> we can work through that. Blah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, we can great. work through all that. And what's your, uh, where's your website at, Ed? Hemplobby.org. And from there, you can link to the new blog, too, eh? Hey, hey. What kind of stuff do you think you'll be writing about at the new blog? Well, beans of energy is probably the most on everybody's mind right now because of the high fuel prices and what's going on in the Middle East. This is the way to get us off of the Saudi oil tit. There's no question about it. Just start getting the farmers to do it. Not grow corn, but to grow industrial hemp and use the fiber for a conversion, the cellulose conversion. You hear a lot of talk about Swiss grass, switch grass. They're using apparently in Bolivia along with the sugar cane. Sugar cane, I believe, is used more for the ethanol, and they just like distill it, just like you would making whiskey and make ethanol out of it. But mm -hmm. the uh, looking for the fiber fiber plant. I'm not sure if you can find a better one than industrial hemp, particularly in our northern climates. You might find something that'll grow adequately in the south, Mississippi, Alabama, those warm, temperate climates, but not in the northern climates. Northern latitudes are going to require an industrial hemp, I believe, before they can get this cellulistic conversion to pay off. And in order to enjoy the northern climates to their maximum, it's also important to have a sauna. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have uh, 
Scandinavian roots. My grandfather was immigrant from Finland, and uh, I have fond memories of using his sauna when I was a kid. So I've made three or four of them, and the last one I built here at this spot, and it seems to be working out pretty good. It's kind of modern, though. It's got a shower in it and things like that that grandpa's never had. But, uh, yeah, friends and, and family sure have enjoyed it for the last couple of years we've been using it. Indeed. From P.L. Washington, we're switching off and getting into our eggs and bacon. See you later. Okay, bye now. You've been shooting along with Uncle Okay, this is Hemphead here in downtown PL, just chugling on with Uncle Weed. See, nice stare. Bacon and stereo, man. We'll be making vegetarian salivate with that noise. <laughs>